Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is John Christopher. Today, I have as my guest, uh, Saunders broker, Diane Sachi. Hi, Diane. How are you today? I'm good, John. How are you? Great. I'm fantastic. Uh, Before we start talking about what's happening in our market, and a lot of people seem to think we come out of the womb saying, I want to sell real estate. I'm always fascinated by the journeys we've taken. What were you doing before you became a broker? Oh, gosh. Um. (laughs) Nobody knows this part, right? No, actually, if, if, you, if you read the about on um, the webpage, you can tell. I was um, a psychiatric occupational therapist, and I um, ran a large um, therapeutic activities department at New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center, and I taught occupational therapy at several different universities. So um, this was really a big change. So I came out to the Hamptons thinking that I was going to um, basically flip houses. I thought it would be time to rehabilitate houses instead of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, um, once I started looking for homes to buy out here, um, I found the business so interesting and exciting that I um, asked a friend of mine if I could join and be a broker with them. And they said, yes. And that's how it all happened. Wow. That's interesting. And so you've been doing a great job since then. I've been having so much fun. I can't, I mean, it's just living out here is unbelievable, as I know you know. Um, and the, it's interesting. The pace is good. The environment's lovely. We meet great people. We're in and out of beautiful homes. And I work with such, I mean, I, I sort of sound like I'm, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid. But I can't imagine having so much fun making money. You know, I think that's half the, uh, the battle. What do they say yeah. that uh, if you enjoy what you're doing, it's not work? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So we're living in a crazy time now when it comes to, <laughs> to real estate. Don't you think it's a little uh, unusual? You know, inventory is down, prices are up. We got bidding wars going on. So what do you think it's going to be the new normal? Oh, gosh. You know, I, probably if you asked me this, um, you know, in the end of 2019, I have all kinds of ways to predict the future. And then COVID came and I, you know, when it first happened, I thought, you know, this was the end, which we should just pack up and go home. There'd be no more real estate. The stock market would crash. Um, It would, you know, we'd have this great depression. Anyway, that lasted a couple of hours, I think. And um, everything is different. There was no way I could have predicted last year. And um, as it's evolved, it's been inexplicable. I don't know what's ahead. Um, I think that for the short term, because we're so low on inventory and people are feeling particularly, and I say this, I always feel bad because I know there's like a whole lot of people in this country, in this world that are hurting because of this. Um, And I'm not talking about health. I'm just talking about finances. Um, A lot of the folks we work with were able to continue making money. um, If not at their jobs in the stock market and their cost of living has gone down a great deal because we're hardly going out and spending money. So there's a lot of cash on the sidelines and a lot of people wanting to make investments in real estate and our inventory is low. So I suspect, you know, 
probably through this year we'll be okay out here. I don't know what'll happen afterwards. Probably we'll all be okay, but I don't know. I'm, I'm right. gonna don't have the crystal ball. No, no. <laughs> okay. And I'm usually wrong, so you know it's. Um, I know, somebody said I, I read well, it, and it sounds really like a Hallmark card. Um, right. You can't live in the past because it's not there for you, and you can't live in the future because it may not be there for you. So you know we can just live for today. So I can predict what's going on right now. Oh, that's excellent! Excellent. You're a good predictor then. Um, so a lot of home homeowners think that maybe this is a great time to sell, but aren't there other things a homeowner should be aware of? You know, like, you know, I'm sure you get this question, you know, I'm thinking about putting my house on the market. What do you advise to these people? Well, um, interestingly that, you know, I think a lot of people are getting ginned up to sell partially because of broker activity and what they're hearing in the press, because it sounds like you can take any house and add any number to it and it'll just sell. And suddenly your asset is worth, you know, way, way more than you ever imagined it to be. Um, Part of it is that brokers are calling homeowners are sending postcards and saying, you know, I just sold this in your neighborhood and they picked the most expensive thing and everyone thinks their house is as nice as the other one. Um, So people are getting really ginned up and thinking it's time to sell. Um, When they call me and say, you know, it wasn't part of my plan. It was a five-year plan, but maybe I should move it up or accelerate things because the market's so good. Um, I often tell people, I mean, sometimes I sound like buzzkill, but to look at the big picture, because if it's not time to sell, to sell just because the market's up, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's like selling stocks and cashing out and then paying your tax and trying to go back in at a later day and think you're get ahead. When most of the people in the stock market tell you to just hold on because buying and selling is going to cost you too much. And particularly buying and selling homes is even more expensive. So if you're planning to sell and if you have another plan, particularly if your plan is to leave the area or to buy a way more expensive house, it makes sense. If your plan is to cash out and buy a less expensive house, you're not going to end up, I don't think, with as much money at the end of the day as you think you are or that you wish you are. And it's going to be an awful lot of work to get there. Those nuances people don't hear when they suddenly hear that their, say, $2 million house is now possibly worth $3 million. All they hear is, wow, there are a million dollars. Oh, it's more, right. Yeah. So, and, it, you know, it's not. You, you, one, you might have whatever's, whatever that delta is after you pay tax on it. But then you need another house to go to, unless you're not going to another house, you know, or you're moving up makes a whole lot of sense, except you're going to sell your house high and you're going to buy another house and that's expensive. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have a customer that's looking to uh, downsize mm-hmm. and, and my, you know, he's saying, geez, the same thing you're saying is like, oh, I can make a million dollars here and I'll find myself something else, you know, in this certain area. And I say, well, you know, at that price range, you're not getting what you think you're getting, you know, because right. people think, okay, I'm downsizing. I'll stick a million dollars in my pocket and I can get something that I can live in. They can't. It's just basically, yeah. it's, you know, I say, do you want to live in like this? Cause I know how you're living now. <laughs> Is this doable? Mm-hmm. You're going to have to do a lot of work. And uh, that's, that's something what you're talking about is that it's not all that it seems sometimes, right? It's not at all. I mean, if you're buying, if you're selling in a strong market, you're going to be buying in a strong market unless you go somewhere else. 
Um, and the same thing, if you're you know, buying in a down market, you're going to make up for that loss by buying something that's less. And I'll tell you, I got a call from somebody who had a ha- fairly expensive house that she used to rent out in the summertime. And um, she had it on the market because back before COVID, it, the rental market wasn't the way it is now. And she you knows some years she rented, some years she didn't. She was often disappointed with the rental income. So she put her house on the market and she sold it. I, you know, COVID comes and she calls me and she said, I shouldn't have sold my house. And I said, why? And she said, well, I could have gotten so much more. And I, what I said is, what do you do with the money that you, um, when you, the proceeds from the sale, oh, I put it in the stock market. And I said, well, how did that do? And well, this, you know how, how the stock market did sure. in that year, which sure. her, her portfolio was up about 30% her house would not have gone up 30% and she would have had the expenses of the house, but she hears the percentage and not what she realized after capital gains and, you know, paying everything off and then maintaining the house over the year. And the question of whether or not it would have rented, chances are it would have rented, but net net she's ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Cause you got to look at the big, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, one piece of a pie and, and generally speaking, not always, when the real estate is up, stock market's up. Right, right. A lot of times, yeah, you've got to look, like you just said, you have to look at the whole thing, the whole scenario. Yep. Does it fit for you? Yeah. Um, what are some of the things, okay, now you have the homeowner says, Diane, definitely I want to put the house on the market. What should I do? Uh, is there anything I should do about the house? Is there anything you think, any recommendations? Well, there, there, there's two parts. One is getting the house ready um, to show, and the other is getting the house ready to sell. And the house ready to sell these days is not easy because you have to get an updated CO, even if it's not required by your municipality. The buyer's attorney is going to reasonably insist upon an updated CO, and it's going to be hard to get someone to buy it. That's not going to make you do that. And the rules have changed over the years. And I, I, very few people have not made changes, um, and most people have not made changes, but um, and uh, had their CEO updated along the way. For listeners, CEO is a certificate of occupancy, and it means you've done everything according to the code. And if you didn't do according to code um, back when you did the work, you have to. Um, meet the standards for today's code, which in every regard has gotten more onerous over the years. So people say, well, I got a CO 30 years ago. And I say, did you do anything to fence? Oh, no, we just put up a deer fence. There's you know, tech number one. Um, we didn't expand the house, but what about that bedroom in the garage or the bathroom in the basement? Um, and I've had a, something recently where someone put a... Um, it took an old garage and made it into a pool house, which probably would have been allowed, except they didn't get a CO to do it. Um, And they insist that their builder, oh, he's by the book. I know he did it. Everything is right. And, you know, then we find out that it isn't. So one of the things that um, I do, and so does Saunders, is we check all of those things when we take the listing. So we're not surprised at the end of the day. But it's a lot of it, it's a lot of work to get it up to date, and it also means 
removing things or changing things that might make everything different. You know, like if you don't have a fence around the pool or the perimeter fence, you may not want to spend the money to do all of that work when you don't need it because of your lifestyle. Um, but people have to do that. So it's work and money and time. Um, I most, well, no, an awful lot of people, particularly the kind, the people that we deal with, somehow think that the rules don't necessarily apply to them. And after all, they know somebody who bought a house without a CO, so not to worry about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that's usually a hurdle. And very often when people know they have to do that, they kind of have fantasies that uh, let the kids deal with it when we're dead. <laughs> right, exactly. Then that's yeah. gone. Uh, so I can't believe the time has flown by. I have to have you come back right. again, Diane, because you, you're very interesting and very uh, knowledgeable. Uh, but how can somebody uh, get in touch with you? Um, ds at saunders.com or my website diane.sachi.com great diane again thank you so much this is john christopher for real life on wliw 88.3 fm the only npr station on long island and we'll be right back after this short break Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me Ginny Fratti, sorry, Ginny, and uh, the executive director of Alexander, take two. Let's do it again. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have with me Ginny Fratti, who is the executive director of Evelyn Alexander Wildlife Rescue Center. Hi, Ginny. How are you today? Hi, fine. Thank you. That's fantastic. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting people that we've had an influx of people coming out from the city, um, but they don't realize a lot of times that it's really more of a country uh, out here in the sense of wildlife. And a lot of times people, you know, find something, you know, some of the wildlife in their backyards. But even before we start on that, let's let's start at the beginning. Um, how did Evelyn Alexander Wildlife Rescue Center come about and when did it? Well, I actually founded it, uh, founded the organization 23 years ago, and I, I saw a woodchuck hit by a car on the side of the road, and I didn't know who to call, and I just thought the government handled wildlife, and um, they don't, of course. Um, there's a handful of wildlife rehabilitators that I tried calling and um, just got answering machines, and I, I just couldn't believe that there wasn't a place that somebody could bring wildlife to or to call to rescue injured wildlife. And it was so necessary because so many animals are impacted, particularly at this time of year when they're nesting and trying to have babies. Uh, so many people are in, so many animals are impacted by human activities that it, it was really a necessary thing to have out here in the East End. Well, I think that's, that's very admirable. I, um, and I, what happened to the woodchuck, by the way? Uh, I don't know. I drove away. I couldn't find anybody and I was not trained. I didn't know what to do. I just drove away. Wow, I don't know. And, and uh, you know, it's kind of sad to think about, but I'm sure a lot of people do that, too. They just drive away because they don't know that there's a place that can help. Right. OK. Um, what did you do before uh, founding the uh, the Wildlife Rescue Center? I was a secretary administrator for the Suffolk County Department of Public Works, and I was there for almost 25 years. And um, 
I was actually driving to work when I saw this woodchuck and it, it just was, took me a cute couple of years after that to think about it and make a career change. But I just decided that, you know, a paycheck is so much more than money. It's, it's helping a wild injured wildling wild that can't help for itself, can't help itself get released back into the wild. And I figured that's a bigger paycheck than money. Right. Uh, because and, the, and the gratification, years, you know, we had no, I had no paycheck. So everything was volunteer. And is it still volunteer? We have a lot of volunteers, but we do have a staff now of about 15 to 18 uh, people. We take in about 2,500 animals, injured animals a year. Wow. And uh, so we do have a small staff and volunteers that come and help work at the hospital. They help prepare diets, give medications, uh, clean the cages and make the animals comfortable until we can get them released and back out in the wild again. We also have several veterinarians that help us out too. And they help us out free of charge, which we appreciate so much. Right. So are the uh, vets on call like 24-7? No, not really. But we're trained to do immediate first aid. We have a a DEA license for controlled substances so we can put them to sleep humanely. We're trained to put splints on, treat for shock, uh, suture up wounds if we have to, and um, stabilize the animal before the, the vet can see it. Usually it's not a good idea to rush an animal to the vet where there's barking dogs and that will further put the animal into oh, uh, and shock. Stress. Right. It's got to be vet. stressful, especially for yes. the animal. Right. Yeah. Wow. That is interesting. Um, I know you have a mission statement and um, basically it's uh, trying to raise public awareness to the factors that threaten uh, its abundance and diversity. So what factors threaten wildlife's uh, abundance and diversity? I'm guessing people maybe. Yeah. People more at this, this time with all the building going on in the East end, that's probably affecting them the most. There's less and less land for them to, hide, raise their young, go about their business. There's hardly a tract of land where a road doesn't run through it. Uh, box turtles trying to cross and lay their eggs. They, they can't go very far without coming to a road. And due to their slow gait, it's almost always fatal when they try and cross the street. People yeah. out mowing their lawns, uncover rabbits' nests, uh, taking down trees, pruning. There's birds' nests in them now at this time of year. And uh, many times the birds get injured during these activities that, uh, unintentionally. Right. And um, that's why we have so many animals, uh, particularly at this time of year, our, our wildlife hospitals filled to the brim right now. Jeez. You know, it's uh, speaking of birds, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you get a lot, especially this time of the year, you're getting a lot of calls. A baby bird has fallen from its nest. What yes. advice do you give to your call- callers when they do that? That's probably 90% of the calls we're getting right now is birds falling from the nest when in actuality, if if they have all or most of their feathers and are able to hop around a little bit, they belong out of the nest. When they first come out of the nest, they can't fly yet. And that's when people find them and think that they're orphaned. But both parents care for the young. So it's very, very unlikely that they're orphaned. And uh, so that's most of the phone calls. And we have people that send us a picture now. Technology is really good with uh, the smartphones and we can look at the bird and say, no, no, that's a fledgling, just leave it alone. Keep your pets inside. Keep your children away from it. The parents will fly down and feed it. And in one or two days, it should be able to fly. But that's that very vulnerable time when they first leave the nest that people, uh, you know, pick them up unintentionally. And they're trying to do good. And actually, they're doing harm. Yeah. Yeah. It's they're very, it's well-meaning too. And they don't realize that uh, they don't, 
a human mother would never be away from their baby for any length of time, but wildlife is different. Uh, wildlife, they usually have four or five young they're trying to take care of, you know, so they are not able to stay with each animal all the time. And when they see people, they, they, they fly away. They're not near the birds. And people will stand there and wait for the mother to fly in and feed it. And they're not going to do that when you're standing there. <laughs> right. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So basically, if a bird falls out of a tree, you should, if you have dogs or cats, keep them inside until, yes. until the, the mother bird or the, the other bird, whoever is there, comes and takes care of the bird. Yes. Yeah, they'll feed it and then they'll lead it away. They'll hop after her. But they can land in a, in a place that's unsafe. And then it is perfectly fine to pick them up and move them. As if, say, they fall out of their nest and they're right in the middle of the road. Well, just move them, put them off the road, put them in the low branch of a tree and, and just keep going. No right. need to watch. Make sure if mother's coming back. You know, and she eventually will. Yes. Now, what, what about the tail. adage that if you touch a bird, that yeah. a mother will reject the bird? Yeah. Like, that's a lot of people you know, say, let me put the bird, you know, oh, there's the nest. Let me see if I can put the bird back in the nest. Right. That's completely an old wives tale. You can touch a baby bird. The parents will not reject it. Some birds do fall out of their nest too soon. They have no feathers at all. They're completely naked, nothing but skin. They can't even stand up. So yes, they could be picked up and put back in the nest. The problem is finding the nest. And if you do find the nest, it might be too high. Um, in that case, people can call us for help. We always have great suggestions. You could make a makeshift nest out of a berry basket, put some dried grasses in it and stick it up into the tree. And uh, we have a lot of um, ways to get that baby back with its parents. That's wonderful. Now, uh, say um, somebody took the bird inside. Is that, uh, I've read somewhere where that's illegal to, to hold uh, any type of wild animal. Is that it, it is for uh, longer than 24 hours. Ah, uh, we okay. have both uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife permits and New York State DEC permits to hold wildlife. And without a permit, um, you cannot hold wildlife for more than 24 hours. The public is allowed to pick it up and to either bring it to a veterinarian or a wildlife center or allowed to hold it for a short period of time. Uh, but no, people aren't allowed to raise it. And there's a good reason for that. Their diets are very specific. You have to know what species they are. Uh, the different species of birds eat different things. Different mammals eat different, you know, the different formulas. You have to make sure they're warm and hydrated. And so you, you can do more damage if you're not trained. Well, it sounds like you guys are trained. What is branchling? A branchling is a bird that uh, is mostly refers to birds of prey that come out of the nest and they just kind of hop from branch to branch. Um, and the mother is there again, taking care of them and feeding them. So it's kind of like a fledgling, but a branchling more or less is for like birds of prey. They make their nest very high up. And when they first come out of the nest, they just, they land on a branch. Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's funny. This next question reminds me of uh, Tony Soprano of the Sopranos when he had a duck in his pool. What do you do uh, if you have a, a duck in your pool or a baby duck for that matter? try and find its family, <laughs> but it, they can, they love to swim, but they can drown if they can't get out. So we do get calls about baby ducks and pools. And we ask people to, if they have a piece of plywood or a pool float or something, just angle it in so that the babies can get out. Huh. Um, the bigger question is, is the mother there? Because if the mother's not there, they probably do need to come in for help. In that situation, 
you know, really the mother in Waterfowl, the mother's the only one that takes care of the young. Um, but usually she might get temporarily distracted. They don't have a lot of predators like uh, adult ducks. She usually has to fly around a couple of times and find them again. Okay. But just have them put a piece of plywood angled in and kind of wait, watch and wait and see what happens. And then once the duck uh, waddles up the, the, the plank, what happens yeah. then? Let it. The let mother it usually be. will fly around. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, if it if it if the mother's not around, it'll it'll stay there peeping, you know, and look very upset. And then it might be time to intervene. But usually the mother's right there. You probably hear a lot of stories about baby ducks going down storm drains, and the cops come and get them out, and we come, we have volunteers come and get them out. And usually the mother is right there waiting. She's usually not too <laughs> far away. And once you get them out, the the mother joins with the uh, the baby yep. duck, the duckling, and that's it. Yep. And life goes on. Yeah, that's yep. wonderful. That's that usually wonderful. What, how people realize the ducks are down in a storm drain. The mother is running around the storm drain quacking. It's it's heartbreaking. I wish they would design those storm drains different so that that doesn't happen. Right, right. Makes sense. Um, yeah. What do you do if you get a bat in the house? That's a little tricky. They're rabies vector species and there is rabies in bats in Suffolk County. The first thing is to determine what people should always call us. Uh, people should always determine whether there's been an exposure, if, if the bat has bit anybody, if it's been in the room with a person who's sleeping. The bat bite is so tiny, you could be sleeping and not even know that it bit you. Um, hmm. Was it in the room with a baby that can't tell you that it was bit? So we have to ask those questions first. If there's been absolutely no exposure, there's ways to get it out You know, humanely. If they give us a call, we can tell them. But if there's been an exposure, you know, it does have to be captured and, and unfortunately put to sleep and tested for rabies. What um, about if you found a bat on the ground? There might be a problem. They can't fly from the ground. Um, wearing gardening gloves, you can take a stick and try and get it to grip onto the stick and see if you can get it up into the branch of the tree because it can only fly from a position that's like 10 feet up. It can't take off from the ground. Um, but if, if it's near a tree, on the ground near a tree, probably the answer would be to do nothing. It could crawl over to the tree and climb back up it. So hmm. that, that situation is probably just to watch. If it's near a tree, just watch for a few hours and, and call us with any questions because you don't want to get bit by one and, and, and take that chance. Right, right. I, a funny story, I, when I was a kid, um, speaking of bats, I found one uh, on the ground and I thought it was a bird. So I took it home to my mother and she, <laughs> and she freaked out, obviously. But uh, I didn't know, had the knowledge that I, ha that I have now that you're imparting to us. So that's, that's yeah. really interesting. Now, we also get raccoons in fireplaces. Um, yes. what, do you, what do you do? Well, if it's in the fireplace, they, they often make their nest on a smoke shelf. So if the chimney is uncapped, um, there's a smoke shelf right above the, the flue. The flue is the little door that opens and closes. So they make their nest on top of a, the flue, usually on the smoke shelf. And that's fine and good. They, they can go about their business. The mother could raise their young and they can leave. And, and the family only has to put up with a little chattering or something. But if the flue is open, they can fall down into the fireplace. Now, mother will, given a chance, grab them and take them back up. Um, so the idea is to either close the glass door <laughs> right. or um, 
you know, call us for help if there's something like that in the fireplace. So you shouldn't start a fire then, right? I mean, no, no, because the little ones can't get back up. And uh, people think that too. And they think that with squirrels too. A squirrel in any kind of chimney usually is trapped and needs help because their bodies aren't big enough to get out of that themselves. The mother raccoons brace themselves on the chimney wall and they can get up and down. They can pick their babies up, grab it from the fireplace, pick it back up. Um, but, you know, squirrel is trapped in, hmm. in a fireplace. So, you know, it can, if there's a squirrel in a fireplace, yes, it needs help and they should give us a call. Okay. So raccoon babies in a fireplace, as long as they can shut that door so that it doesn't get in their house, the mother can come down and retrieve the babies. Now we have a, a less than 30 seconds. You have an adopt an animal program. Can you tell us what that is in short period of well, time? Well, uh, for a donation, and it's on our website, www.wildliferescuecenter.org. Uh, people can make a donation there. They can adopt an animal um, and they'll get a picture of an animal with a certificate of that animal's history. Um, this is lots of ways they can uh, sign up to volunteer on our website. It's a great resource. What's that they can website find help. again? www.wildliferescuecenter.org. And it also gives wildlife advice like I'm giving you too. So it's a very great. helpful website. Excellent. Excellent. Jenny, it's been a delight having you on the program. And this Thank is John. You. You're quite welcome. This is John Christopher for Real Life Broadcasting here in Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3. Now, remember, as summer begins, so does our new fiscal year. So help us start on the right foot with a donation during our Community Matching Gift Challenge. Thanks to our Vice Chair of the WNET Board of Trustees, Charlotte Ackert, your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar up to $50,000. So please take advantage of this great opportunity and call today, 800-262-0717. In the meantime, thank you again for listening. And remember, have an awesome journey. You have been listening to Real Life the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for real life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at wliw.org radio.